Real hope moves us to action. It's really the thesis of everything else I'm about to say. Real hope moves us, drives us, necessitates that we do something with it. And in fact, all you have to do is look at the world around you. In fact, people line up for hours, well, maybe not so much anymore, but line up for hours to get their hands on a device. They're hoping that this device will really be life-changing. In fact, that's what they sell, right, at Apple? Get this device. This new device is so much better than the last device that you currently own. The one you own now is garbage. Get this new one. It's really going to change your life. It's faster. It's got higher pixelation. It's got better depth and all the other stuff that they sell you. Uh, and people do go in line and they spend, right now, it's like 1200 bucks for the higher-end phone because they truly believe this device is really what I need. I'm hoping that this device changes my life as promised by Apple. Um, you remember when the iPhone 5 came out, people lined up for hours to get their hands on the device first before anyone else could get it. Some of you still have the iPhone 5. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of our students on the screen, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's, it's a big deal, right? Some of you guys are like, but yeah, that's stupid. I'm smarter than that. I, I don't buy into Apple's, you know, branding and all that. I'm really into Disneyland, though. Disneyland fanatics are worse than Apple fanatics. <laughs> I, can, I can prove that in many ways. But I found out recently that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is so popular. They're trying to do a soft opening to really give people a sense of experiencing it so that they can test and make sure that it's everything they want it to be and, and that people are still, um, it, whoops, still into that. Um, and so what Disneyland is doing, they're soft opening and people are, of course, waiting for hours to have a taste, a sight of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Why? Because it's exciting, it's fun, they're hoping that the experience is as awesome as it's, as it's uh, expected to be. And this, this happened a couple years ago, too, when they opened up Cars Land. Uh, Cars Land still, to this day, has hour, like, hours-long waits if you want to go with your family and friends that love you. Or you can ride with a stranger, and that's usually not as long as a wait. But the, again, the, they're selling the experience, the hope of something life-changing and radically cool. I just got on this ride this last, I think, January. For the first time, I got to ride that, uh, what's it called? Radiator Springs Racers. It was worth the wait. <laughs> it was, because I had passes when it first came out. My wife and I had passes. We didn't have kids at this point, so uh, we, well, we did. We had a baby, so it was easy. We had passes. We're like, let's go and let's get in line. And then we walked over there and realized that if we wanted to wait for the Cars Land Racers, uh, we would have years and years in line, and we're like, we're not going to do that. Just go off and do something else. So we did soaring over the world or whatever else it was. But my point is, they sell you the idea of hope, right? Hope this is going to be so good. You're going to want this. There's a height value to it. And hope drives you to get in line and wait for hours, whether it's for an Apple product or a Disney product. Hope. This morning's sermon is all about hope. And in fact, it's the kind of hope that Peter talks about as being the kind of hope that sustains you and the hope that's going to make life bearable, tolerable, and even joyful in the midst of the suffering that the, that the world throws your way. And that James uses not the word hope, but he says faith. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Inactive hope is dead hope. It needs to be exercised, stretched, grown, or it will die. And in the same way, the whole sermon is about active hope, the kind of hope that is not docile, it's not dormant, it drives us to do something. That is real hope. And when that hope is there, that is a sustaining hope. That's the kind of hope that you should have, the kind of hope that you should strive for. And if you don't have that hope, you have something less than hope. 
Peter's going to give us instructions about what hope should look like as you go through a time of suffering. And as we, as we enter back into this book, you need to remember the context. I'm going to remind you about this for the next three or four sermons that we do. The context of 1 Peter is Peter's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering and struggling and being persecuted for what they believe, for clinging to the, the, the confession of their hope that Jesus Christ is God, he's the son of God, and he's also coming back and he's going to rule and reign all of creation. The Christians that are clinging to this are saying, I'm suffering because of this, Peter. Help me. Tell me, Peter, what do I need to know? Some of you guys are going to college and you're going to experience the kind of uh, suffering and persecution that comes with being a Christian, at least a faithful Christian in today's day and age. And so this letter has a great deal of significance for you. If you're not leaving for, for college yet or not just going out into the world, you're going to experience this in your schools. If you're going to testify and be a faithful Christian, they're going to say, nope, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't think that. In fact, we get accused of, of indoctrination all the time. You know, you're lemmings, you follow blindly, you just do whatever you're told to do, and that could not be further from the truth. We follow God, but it's not a blind, a blind following. We follow intelligently. In fact, if there's any indoctrination going on, it's the worldly indoctrination. If this is how you should think, proof, want proof in the pudding? The proof in the pudding is that if you decide to think differently than how everyone else in the world thinks right now, are you rewarded for that? Are you applauded for being an individual and independently thinking? No, you're not. You're squashed. You're squashed because you're a bigot. You're a hater. The suffering that Peter is referring to is not the kind that you and I are going through right now, but let me be clear. You should be preparing yourself to hurt and to suffer if you're going to follow Christ. And let me tell you now, what's going to happen is you're going to struggle. You're going to be hurting and, and suffering and thinking, what, is this even worth it? Do I really believe this? Is this really what I should be doing? If I'm getting so much kickback for this, is this really what I want to follow? Is this really the God that I want to serve? And Peter comes in and says, let me tell you the grace that you have in Christ and why you need to endure and what that endurance will look like. You need to have active hope. It's a hope that's exercised, a hope that's, that's strengthened. And here's what that hope looks like. Let's begin at verse 13. Let's read, the, the, the ver, ver, let's read verse 13 all the way through 21, just so we get a gist of Peter's argument and flow here, and then we'll jump in line by line. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, here's the charge, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus in that section there. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The question you should ask right there is fear of what or who? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, vain, empty ways, inherited from your forefathers. So he's talking to pagans here. He says, okay, you guys used to worship idols and follow those things. He said, don't do that anymore. Because you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Okay, so in that summary, which we're going to go through really fast, buckle your seatbelts. In that summary, Peter gave you three major ideas, three keys of how to have active hope, what it looks like to exercise that. Let's look again at verse 13 and, be, and hang, our hat, or hang our hat on this first major thrust. And of course, whenever you see the word therefore, the first question you should ask is, what's the therefore, therefore? What's he referring to? Well, really, you could look back at verses 3 through 12. And in this, let me just give you the gist here. What Peter is saying is that you need to look back at everything I just said. Therefore says, because of the great salvation you've been given, therefore, and you'll notice two participles here, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Those two things describe the main verb in the clause or the main thrust. Here's the main thrust is, and I'm going to give it to you. Set your hope fully Oops, didn't mean to cross it out. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you see the structure of the text now. He's saying, because of the great salvation you have, one major thrust, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The way that you do that is by being sober-minded, preparing your minds for action. Really, all of that to say, what, what, is, what his main thrust is his hope, full hope, in the main thing that counts, and that's going to sustain you for the rest of your life. And he says it in, a, in an interesting way. Do you see it there? The interesting way is that set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This phrase right here refers to the end, the, the capital E-N, right? It's the big one. This is the new heavens and the new earth. The revelation of Jesus Christ is when he comes back to rule and to reign. He sets up his kingdom, and think about all the things that happen as a result of this event. Sin and death are destroyed, never again plaguing us. Can you just fathom the idea of having your sin done away with? Of having death gone? The people that you know and love that have died and have gone before you, that, that's not going to happen anymore. The people that you love never go away. The sin that plagues your own heart as you deal with other people, that's gone, eradicated, because Jesus comes back. And Peter's saying, don't put your hope in this life, Christians, because in this life, you're struggling and you're suffering. But in this next life, the one that's to come, the one that we should hope in, hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that is going to be when everything is settled. The dust is settled, accounts are cleared, everything is done. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's perfect. The consummation or the new heavens and the new earth is going to be glorious and good. And Peter is saying, that's the hope you need to have. If you're hoping in anything less than that, your hope is going to fail. Now think about this. When was the last time you thought and even pondered the fact that Jesus is going to come back and set up a new heavens and a new earth? Peter is saying, you should be focusing on this. You should put your whole hope on this grace that is coming to us. Jesus coming back and making all things right. When's the last time that you longed for Jesus to return Christians of old would say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why? Well, because they were hurting. In our lives, we have it really good here. We don't really hurt all that much. We're not as bothered about our sin, and so we don't really long for the return of Christ. But Peter is saying, the true hope that anchors the Christian life is the hope that, that longs for the consummation of Jesus coming back and setting all things right. Point number one, we need to put our hope in that. Our ultimate hope needs to be in Christ's inevitable, eventual return. Hope is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's kind of like the word love in many respects. We use hope in a lot of different ways. I hope that my wife makes tacos for dinner. I hope third period as a sub again. I hope I get an ukla. 
I hope, I hope, I, we use the word hope in a lot of different ways. And it's important that when you understand this word, you're not understanding it in the flowery, kind of fluffy way we use it today. Peter's hope is very different because it's a confident assurance that what is hoped for will come to pass. He hopes for a future event that's based on a historical event. In fact, if you remember back in verse 3 when we talked about this, we said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every... No, that's actually Ephesians 2. Um, Blessed be God. And he says that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. It's based on the resurrection, that hope that we have for the future. So Peter's saying, I'm hoping for a future event of Jesus coming back because I know the historical event of Jesus dying and raising from the dead. Our hope in the future is based on the hope in the past. Does that make sense? These two things must go together. Our hope is not in something hopefully, maybe, if possibly. It's this is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Not if, but when. And it's all based on the resurrection. This is what his whole argument is still being built on. He's saying hope in that. Our future hope is based on a past reality. Now you need to understand this. The quality of your hope is dependent upon the object of your hope. The quality of your hope is dependent upon the object of your hope. Think about this with me. The universe operates with the sun at the center. Okay? The universe works when the heaviest object in our universe, rather our solar system, is at the center. The earth and every other planet orbits around the sun. The sun has the greatest mass. It is the strongest gravitational pull in our solar system. It'd be so crazy to think, well, I'm earth and I'm God's precious planet, so I want to be the center of the solar system now. I want to be in the middle and everyone else should gravitate around me because I'm earth. Or if you're Saturn, you got these really cool rings. I want to be in the center of the solar system. Put me there. It's a silly illustration, but our lives are not much different. The heaviest object in our life's solar system is the hope of Christ. Hope in his return. And if you try to put anything else there, anything else you might try to substitute our primary hope with is going to fail you. Your solar system will be terrible in its orbit. It won't orbit well because nothing in, in, this, in your life is strong enough to hold down everything in place. Only the hope of Christ is able to do that. And that's why Peter's focus is don't hope in the other stuff. Yeah, it's okay to hope in having a family and getting an education and making a lot of money and getting your Tesla, whatever else you want to do. Those are okay hopes as long as they're rightly ordered. But the ultimate hope that grounds you, sustains you, anchors you, and keeps your life in order is the hope of Christ. Christ, his inevitable return, his consummation, his glory, his honor. When anything else is in the sunspot, it's going to be out of order. It's going to be chaos. Young person, the only thing heavy enough in your life to sustain your hope is the hope of Christ. If you try to put your hope in your good looks or your money-making ability or anything else, anything else short of Christ himself, your life will turn into chaos. Because let me tell you this, and I can promise you this, at some point in your life, the thing that you most hope in, if it's not Christ, is going to let you down in a terrible way. And in those moments, in the darkness, when you realize that what you most hope for has left you empty and confused, that's when you're going to remember this sermon and realize that it is the hope of Christ, that alone, that has the gravitational pull, the strength enough to sit at the center of your universe. Nothing else works. Sure, you might get away with it for a little while. You might even go your entire life trying to make your life orbit around an idol. But at some point, that idol will be revealed for what it is. 
Peter uses the word, it's uh, empty, vain, futile. Don't let that be you. Let your life object around the capital S-O-N, not the S-U-N. It's a silly illustration, I know, but you get the idea. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that we have an idea what we're talking about by this hope, let me describe to you what hope looks like based upon what Peter says here. First of all, hope looks like, verse 13a, active thinking. Active thinking. It's not lazy thinking. It's not the kind of thinking that just goes with the flow. And just as I said earlier, this is not indoctrinal thinking, indoctrination, and the, and the, and the lemming, you know, blinding your minds kind of sense. This is about thinking truly and faithfully to what God's word says. It's giving yourself the ability to think rightly. And in fact, if your Bible has a little note there, that active thinking, preparing your minds for action, is literally the phrase, gird up your loins. When's the last time you've used that? <laughs> Probably not today. Girding up your loins, is a, there's, a, there's a website that did a graphic about this. I've shared this to you before, but I thought it'd be helpful again. Girding up your loins had to do with your robe, your long flowing robe. Uh, ladies, you probably could do this with your prom dress. Put the long flowing robe and then tie it around the back and then shove it under and then you tie it in the front and now you can go attack your prom date. So if you do, <laughs> this is girding up the loins, uh, girding up your loins. Now, Peter uses this same phrase. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. This comes from Exodus chapter 12. Here's the phrase. And thus shall you eat it. And this is actually the, the King James, which is exactly where it comes from. King James, thus shall you eat it. This is the Passover event where the lamb is slain. The, the, the door is put with the bloody leg and everything. Here's how you're supposed to eat the Passover. With your loins girded. That means you're prepared for action. You're ready to get up and do whatever you got to do. You're prepared as you eat it. Your shoes on your feet, staff in your hand, and you're going to eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. If you're reading the ESV, here's how it puts it. It's a little different, but you get the idea. In this manner shall you eat it with your belt fastened. So you get the idea. You're prepared. You're ready. You're active. Sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Same idea. That's what active hope or active thinking is about. It's saying that my hope is such that it is active. It is activated. It moves. It's not lazy. There is a sense of spiritual alertness, a spiritual hypedness about you. It's zeal. It's, this, it's the ability to say, look, I, I, my hope is in Christ, but that, not, that doesn't mean it's going to be a lazy hope. It's going to be the kind of hope that gets me up in the morning. It's going to be the kind of hope that, that, that carries me to study my Bible, to read, to meditate, to get my mind fixed on what matters most especially in a world of distraction that you're all in right now, writing essays for your, well, I guess some of you are past the essay part now, uh, writing essays, doing homework, uh, having a part-time job, having, you know, taking care of your siblings or whatever chores you got at home. Those are all right and good. That's part of living life. But at the same time, it's so easy for us to get distracted from what matters most and look at the here and now to the neglect of the there and then. And that's what Peter wants you to avoid. Your hope in this life is active thinking. He continues on. Not only is it active thinking, look at that second part of the phrase there. It's preparing your minds for action. That's the first one right here. But the second part is being sober-minded. You think of the word sobriety, and you might think about being induced in a drug, a drug, a drug high or a, a, an alcoholic high. Uh, that, that is a part of what he's talking about. But what's really happening here is he's saying you need to be self-controlled. In fact, hope looks like disciplined thinking that controls your thoughts. It's a whole life, uh, it's a whole life approach to saying, I want to be uh, the kind of Christian that is often thinking about Scripture. The kind of Christian who organizes everything in his mind based upon what God's Word says. There's this, uh, there's this movie that I like where the guy in the movie 
uh, finds out, he wakes up with like bullets in his chest and stuff. And he's like, oh man, I'm this killer assassin guy who was trained by the government. He's telling this girl in this diner, he's trying to convince her like, no, really, I woke up and I'm an amazing assassin killer guy. And I don't know how this happened. He says to her, I can tell you the license plate numbers on all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs about 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know that the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at, his, and at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? That guy reminds me a lot of myself. <laughs> oh, is that funny? All joking aside, that's the kind of mind the Christian should have, but not about killing people, of course, <laughs> about, about knowing God, having the kind of mental bandwidth to say, I'm going to train myself to be disciplined and active in my thinking so that I'm prepared to hope on what matters most. It's like the, it's like the idea, I know six verses that I can pull out that, that have to do with anger or, or anxiety. Now, I, I know, you know, 10, 10 sermons I can go to that will help me uh, be encouraged in loving God more than loving stuff. I, I, know, I, you know, I know three leaders I can call that are going to help pray for me or whatever it is. Taking that same born-like mentality and applying it to the Christian faith, or Gomez-like mentality, if you want to use that better analogy. It's, it's letting yourself be spiritually alert and aware. That's the kind of hope that Peter wants us to have. Hope. It's not just about thinking well, of course, but this is part of it. Putting your hope fully on Jesus' return is active. It's not lazy, and it's disciplined. It's a day-by-day kind of mentality. Peter continues on, and I love this. I love this. I love this. I hope, I hope I can show you the beauty of this text as we go through it. I want you to focus on this first part, and we're going to spend a few minutes on it, but I just want to, I want to show you something amazing. Notice how Peter begins this. Okay, so he just said, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Now, first part that you need to see there is that Peter is not saying, kick it into gear, Christian. You need to stop being such a baby and get, get to it. He does say that in a manner of speaking in the next verses, but what he starts with, he says, therefore, look at everything I just showed you about the glory of your salvation. Look at all of this, and now, because of that, go do this. But he doesn't start there. He starts with the foundation of God has taken so much care of you. God has done so much for you. God has blessed you so richly. Doesn't it make sense to go do this other thing now? (laughs) He, He starts with the foundation of grace. And he does the same thing in verse 14, as obedient children. If you just want to look at just that little phrase there without that verse, that without that word yet, as children, you belong to God. You're in his family. You've been adopted. You've been accepted as that. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, and by the way, look at that, he called you first. Didn't wait for you to pick up the phone and call him. He called you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's so important that you see the context. Often we use the word uh, indicative versus imperative. Okay? These are important. Indicative is what God has done for us. The imperative is now how we respond to God. The indicatives are the grace of God. The imperatives are the response that we give to God. So really, point number two, we got to devote our whole lives to holiness. The context, of course, is the context of God's grace and kindness toward us. When we're born again, 
there are new desires deposited into our hearts. But that doesn't mean, of course, that those desires always make it easy for us to do the work that's required of us. Um, I, I remember what it's like to be on the football team. When I first got on the football team, I was stoked to be there. Like, I went out to the first practice. I was suited up. I was early. I tackled that practice like it was the last practice of my life. I gave everything because I was excited to be on the team. Some of you know what that's like to be on a new team and you're pumped about being there. You're motivated. And so you're like, I'm at the practice. I'm going to get my best. I'm going to be the top star. Um, or I also know what it's like to be on the drama team. I was on the drama team for the first time. I love that. I was excited. I memorized my lines backward and forward. I memorized everyone else's lines. I, I humiliated them with my memorization skills. It was great. I was so excited about that. And some of you know what that's like too. You know what it's like to be on the drama team and to be brand new and it's fun and exciting, especially after you've done a show. It's like, oh, this work has been rewarded. Um, but of course, at some point, the excitement and the motivation that first characterizes your love for, fill in the blank, eventually dissipates or rather matures because at some point it becomes work to memorize your lines. It becomes work to lift the weights. It becomes work. Even let's say you love your, your best friend, whoever your best friend is, or your boyfriend or girlfriend. You love them, but it's not always easy to love them, is it? And is it really love if you only love them when you feel like it? Same thing is true in our relationship with God at some point when we're saved, there's an excitement that, that characterizes our zeal for him. We're excited about jumping in the word. We're excited about going to church. But at some point, then that excitement kind of wears off, honestly. And at that point, that's when the motivation to live a holy life really kicks into gear because our love for him has to be such that we're willing to work when it doesn't feel good. That's what real love is. That's what it looks like to live for the holiness of God. But again, so important that you understand this. Grace goes before the command. Young person, please understand this. This is so critical to you getting the Christian life right. Let no one in this room think that I am saying that you should work hard before God to earn or curry God's favor. You're already a lost cause if you're trying that. Grace goes before the command as obedient children. So the idea of working harder should be the last thing from your mind if, if, if it's about earning God's favor. Work harder does not work in the Christian life before grace works. And this is contra contrary to every other religion that you can join. Every other way of life. It's all about work harder, point to Mecca, you know, put it, you know, go to temple this many times, get temple sealed, knock on this many doors. Even secular humanism has its works. Adopt this certain political stance, do this many rallies, vote this way, do this thing and that thing. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. Do you see it? Do you see it? Works are taken out entirely when it comes to our salvation. We're blessed to be able to say it's not about works, it's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It is his work on our behalf that causes us to look at all the complexity of our, our humanity and all the complexity of being right before God and saying, I can rest. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Truly, young person, our Christian lives should be characterized by that. There is a certain sense that even in our working, we're resting in Christ. We're resting in his work on the cross. We're resting in the fact that we're accepted. We're resting in the fact that I don't have to doubt my salvation because I had a bad day. You have a lot more bad days than you even realize. 
The days that we notice it are the days that are hardest for us because we're not resting in Christ. We're not resting in his work on the cross. You see, it's, it's interesting because it's paradoxical. When we're resting in Christ, that's when we best work in Christ. When we're resting in his work on the cross, that's when we best work after the cross. When we're resting in who he says we are in him as children, I can now work from that position and say, it doesn't matter if I've had a bad day. I'm going to get up. I'm going to repent. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to get back to it because my salvation is secure in Christ. I'm resting in him because I'm, I'm a child. You become a child by repentance and faith, and once that happens, that's when everything changes. You can stop working for your salvation and work because of it. As obedient children, start, starting there. That's how Peter starts. That's how we're going to start as obedient children. Now, this is where he, the work comes in here, and this is important. Do not be conformed. The word conform is like you're being pressed into a... a you know, like, like, like cookies, right? You put cookies in those little things and you, you make the, the Christmas tree or the wreath. Um, that's the kind of idea here. You're being conformed to a certain pattern or an image or a likeness. Peter's concern is that you're not conformed to what? And this is interesting. The epithumia of your former ignorance, the passions of your former ignorance. Really what he's saying here is grace teaches us to reject worldliness, Grace goes before the command that is God saved us already. But now, now that we're saved, he teaches us to reject the way of the world. And the way of the world is epithumia, passions, lust of the flesh. And that means a whole lot of things, but doesn't, it at least means sexual lust, sexual passions. But there's a whole lot more behind that word. He says, don't follow the, the pattern of your former ignorance. Ignorance is an interesting word because he's saying the things that we used to do, it's a type of knowledge, isn't it? Following the world is a type of knowledge, but he's saying there's an ignorance there. And he says here also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the ignorance that we used to live in before we were Christians should no longer characterize the lives that we live. This is not cheap grace. The grace that we've been given is costly, expensive, but the effect it should have on us is a denial of the way the world works. Verse 17 in Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We just read something like that. Again, it's a vanity of mind, an emptiness of thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. And this is fascinating. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And get this young person. This is what characterizes the whole thing. Due to what? The hardness of heart. It's not that Christianity is hard to understand. It's that often people reject Christianity, reject Christ because of the hardness of heart that characterizes them. God, essentially, when you put your hand out to him so much, say, no thanks, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. God says, okay, you can, you can have your way. Romans chapter one is all about that. You can have your way. If you want that so bad, you can have it. Hardness of heart. There's ignorance there. Grace teaches us not to embrace worldliness, but to reject it. Grace also teaches us to embrace holiness. So it's a no to this and a whole yes to that. Grace teaches us to embrace holiness. That's really what Peter's call is in verses 14 through 16. Um, he starts off again with the grace as, a, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but contrast here, contrasting change. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. There's an imperative there. Be holy is an imperative. That's the response that Peter expects you to have as a result of the great salvation that you've received. And he says, not only should you be holy, but it should characterize every single fiber of your entire life. That's where this whole point two comes from. 
whole life devoted to holiness, all of your conduct should characterize the fact that all of God's grace has transformed your life. In thoughts, words, and deeds, he's expecting this to be the case. Well, why? Verse 16, since it is written, and again, where's that coming from? book of Leviticus. Really, he, okay, there's, there's a couple thoughts about that. He's not quoting an actual verse in Leviticus. If there is, it's a loose quote. What he's doing is summarizing the whole Levitical law, which you might say, well, isn't the Levitical law part of the Old Testament, or do we still follow that law? Yes and no. Yes, we follow the moral commands of the Old Testament, but no, the civil and ceremonial are no longer binding for the Christian because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. But what that does not mean for us is that we can throw off everything it says. For instance, we still uphold the Ten Commandments. We don't disparage that and say, well, that's under the old covenant law. We don't do that anymore. But often it's the Ten Commandments that are carried over to the New Testament. The moral quality of the law remains. So Peter quotes it, says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I want to point something out to you. You may not have noticed yet. Peter is still talking to New Testament Christians who are being, who are being persecuted. And he's saying, here is how you're to act in the world that is pressing down upon you. I want you to count the times that you've read in the last 15, 16 verses, the time where, where he's talking about evangelism. Count the times where he's talking about evangelism. I'll give you a hint. And it's not that he doesn't care, obviously. He's going to get there. But I want to bring to your attention the, th the point that I think he's making here. Is if you want to make an impact on the world around you, it should be apparent to everyone you know that you are a holy Christian who is hoping in the return of Christ and not in this life. That's the starting place for Peter's mind. As new, covenant, as new covenant people, our lives should be characterized by holiness and by hope in the return of Christ. That's where our evangelism begins. Grace teaches us to embrace holiness, to reject worldliness, and grace is where it all begins. You need to feel that and rejoice in that. Let's continue on here, verses 17 to 21. As we wrap it up, wrap it up and, and get a sense of something I really did not expect Peter to go to. As we finish up these last verses, it's almost like it doesn't quite make sense until you spend time chewing on what Peter is doing here. But the response seems to, to not fit at first. See if you can get this with me. Here's, here's what he says. And if you call on him as father, which by the way, we just talked about children, right? Okay, so he's talking to the, the Christians. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And again, we're asking the question, who or what should we be fearing throughout the time of your exile? Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You weren't ransomed with perishable things like gold or silver. You were ransomed with what? Verse 19, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, we were just talking about the Passover a second ago. Did you, did you recognize that? Peter's theme here. He's talking about now the Passover lamb in Christ who has no blemish, no spot. He's perfect. We're ransomed with that and not with gold or silver. Verse 20, he continues on about who Jesus is. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Looking at this whole paragraph of information here, I want you to get a gist. Okay, what is Peter trying to create in you to say that makes sense to me? It doesn't make sense if you first look at this and say, well, why are we, 
Okay, wait a minute, Peter. You're just saying we're obedient children. We've been accepted in God. We've been, we've been given the gift of, uh, of regeneration. We're new in Christ. The resurrection proves that. We've been given an inheritance. And now you're telling me to fear? Fear what? Fear who and why? I think he gives several reasons here, and I'll unpack them for you. But he's ultimately saying that our fear should be with who? If you're saying God, you're answering correctly. Peter has just talked about the nature of God's holiness, and now he's saying, young person, Christian, don't forget, your God is holy, and that means our response is rightly fear. Let's talk about that. We should really cultivate a godly fear. In a context where Peter is affirming our confidence in Christ and saying Jesus has been, he's died on the cross for our sins and now he's responding with, you should fear God. You should have a healthy fear of God. You should have a robust fear of God. Young person, this will be one one of the biggest differentiators between you and everyone else in your world. This should be one of the primary characteristics that people see in you. This goes part and parcel with your holiness. In fact, Paul describes the world in Romans chapter 3, verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The world doesn't fear God. But for Christians, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That's holiness. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. That really does summarize for us the idea behind this. But Peter gives us a few reasons why we should fear God. We should remember that our life will be judged before God. God is not only holy, but his holiness demands he be just. And that's for good and for ill for us. As Christians, we don't stand before God to be condemned, but be, to, to be commended. That is, there's accountability in your life. Everything that you do in your life counts. It matters. God's not simply going to say, hey, you're a Christian. Boom, enter into the heaven. You're good to go. There is a second step that goes before that in heaven, and that's the judgment seat, the bema seat that Christians will stand before. And in fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, uh, 11, 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, Christ rather, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a judgment coming your way. And Peter says you should have a healthy sense of fear about that, not fear of being sent to hell, but a fear of, man, I want to stand before God and be commended. I want him to be pleased with my life. And granted, again, I am accepted in Christ. This is different. Once I'm accepted in Christ, my salvation secure, now I'm living a life in active obedience to God. And what that looks like is good deeds, is reading my Bible, is being a great Christian, a great witness for the sake of Christ. He expects that of us. His holiness demands that. Paul is not afraid to die, but he does know, he does know that the judgment of God is coming. In fact, he's not afraid to die. He's looking forward to it. Why would this be encouraging to a suffering Christian? Think about that. Fast forward, let's say five years from now, you're in the workplace, you're at school, and you're being, you're, being, you're being pushed down hard for your active love for Christ. Why would this be encouraging to them? Because every act of obedience in their lives, they know God is not going to overlook. There is a positive judgment here that they could say, God, you know, you know the pain I'm going through, and my active obedience to your commands are going to be rewarded and remembered. Verse 17 you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Think about the word exile for a second. What does that mean? Does that mean that you're at home in this world? No. 
Exile means stranger, sojourner, someone who's not at home. You're a foreigner. There's people I know in my life that were foreigners. They had a funny accent. They dress funny. They, they, they accidentally break all social norms and conventions, right? They talk loud or they invade your personal space. They talk right in your face and they have their hands and, you know, they're talking to you and the pizza. There's a lot. Of, sorry, Italians. I don't know why I threw you in there. But there's a lot of things that when you're a stranger and you're a foreigner, you just don't fit. You don't fit in the context that you're in because you're not from here. And Peter's making the point, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You don't belong in this world. You're not made for this world. You're made for the next world where Christ is reigning and ruling and his glory is on full display and all the sin is taken out. You as a Christian, you should feel this. If at any point in your life you get frustrated with your own sin, you're in the right place. You're getting it. If you're not frustrated with your own sin, if you're not frustrated with the sin that you see in all the community, you're not getting it. You're not seeing it because you're at home in the world. And Peter's saying you're not at home. You're in exile. You're in the world. You're not of it. And the, and the pain that you feel in your heart, in your life, in your frustration that you feel when you sin again and again and again, that's a good thing because you shouldn't be okay with it. Christians should never be okay with their sin. They're conducting themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile recognizing I'm accountable to God, I'm saved, yes, but I'm accountable to him, and I want to live righteously and holy. I don't have time for those verses, so I'll just skip them. We conduct ourselves with fear because we know our lives will be judged by our Father, our God. We also conduct ourselves with fear because we realize that our lives were purchased. When I was about your age, I got to ride, I, I think I've told you before, I get to ride passenger in a Lamborghini. And the, the, the driver took us on the freeway and hit the, hit the gas and it got low. And it, was, it was super cool. I remember getting in the, the Lambo though and like touching it, like just two fingers and being gentle. I don't want to break anything because I don't want to pay a million dollars to fix it. Got on the seat and I just sat there nervously. Like I don't want to breathe the wrong way and mess up the... <laughs> the dashboard. I don't want to hurt the window. I just, I sat there and I savored every moment and every horsepower that was right behind my back as it pushed us down the high. It was amazing. But I do remember a certain sense of trepidation that like, I don't want to break anything in the car. I, I knew that the owner probably would not hold me accountable to replace or fix anything that I had accidentally broken. But there was still a sense of, I don't want to do anything wrong. I don't want to hurt the car. It's a Lambo. You probably can't hurt it too badly, but I didn't want to hurt the car even though I was secure in the relationship with the person who owned it, I still had a healthy sense of fear for the car. Why? Because the car was stupid expensive, right? When it comes to our salvation, we have to remember the great, expensive nature of our salvation. This is why it should cause fear in us. Because the salvation that was earned on our behalf was expensive. Some might even say priceless. That's what Peter says knowing this, that you're a ransom from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with a bunch of money, not with gold or silver, but here's where he goes off into a tangent, it seems like, but with the precious, maybe priceless blood of Christ, who is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and which is to say here, this was not an accident. This was not a spur of the moment kind of decision. Christ, before the foundation of the world, knew what he was going to do for us. And he didn't do it only for his sake. Look at the end of verse 20. He was manifest in those last times for the sake of who? The sake of you, Christians, who raised 
uh, so that you, so that, uh, who through him are believers in God. It's through Christ that we believe God the Father. God the Father who raised him from the dead and gave Christ glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your life was purchased. The price of your salvation is very expensive and you can never pay it back. And that's a wonderful reality. But that should cause us to have a healthy sense of fear of God. To say, I don't want to offend a God who has been so kind and has given so much on my behalf. All of this really points us to an active, real hope in God that sustains us through pain, through torture, through trial, through Christians who have had their limbs taken off their bodies, through Christians who have been thrown to the beasts, thrown to wild animals, Christians who were burned at the stake. And what do they do at the stake? The same thing Christ did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or they would sing hymns as they died, being burned for their faith. They would sing hymns. Why? Because their hope wasn't in this world. Their hope was an active hope that longed to be united with Christ, to have their sin dealt with fully and completely. That's the kind of hope that's going to sustain your universe, young person. That's the kind of hope you need to aim for. And that is an active hope, not a lazy hope, not a, not a dormant hope. It's got to be an active hope that you continue to work on all the days of your life. I pray that you would aspire to this hope and never, ever give up that pursuit. I guess let's pray.